This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. In one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Nathaniel White, author of the novella Conscious Designs. The question is, right, without pain, are we still human, right? Um, If we do completely get rid of pain, right, if we could turn pain off, both physical pain and the kind of psycho-emotional pain, are we truly human? We'll be back with Nathaniel White after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews. Hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears, yes, sometimes there's tears, into the podcast for nine solid years, delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe, and I hope you do too, is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show. And it is all me. There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world where you can download it and enjoy it for free. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, 
writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash writers to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is Nathaniel White, author of the novella Conscious Designs. White teaches high school English in Western Colorado, and Conscious Designs is his first published book. It won the 2021 Miami University Novella Prize. White explores the human psyche, disability, culture, and technology in his speculative fiction. Conscious Designs tells the story of Eugene, a wealthy executive who grows organs for human transplantation, who is looking for ways to escape the pain of being paralyzed. He considers purchasing what is known as a second self, which is sold by a company called Conscious Designs. A second self replicates someone's consciousness into a digital form where the pain of having a body disappears. But questions arise as to how consciousness can be exactly replicated, what it means to live without a body, and the nature of existence. We began the discussion with Nathaniel White reading an excerpt from the novella. This conversation was recorded at a live event at the Carbondale Public Library in Carbondale, Colorado. Yeah, so I'm going to preface this a little bit and give it a bit of context. Um, so uh, one of our, our two main characters, Eugene, um, he, uh, he's uh, a, a paraplegic, suffer, suffered a spinal cord injury, um, similar to me. Um, and um, he is suffering a lot of neuropathic pain in his life and um, this, the book is set in, in a, a near future um, in which uh, he has the opportunity to actually have his, his, his mind, that his connectome, the structure of his brain, replicated into a machine um, to become uh, a, a second self um, and essentially to branch his consciousness. Um, and he would, of course, um, kind of keep living in his, um, in his body uh, with his pain, but there would be a, a version of him that would get to, to live uh, without pain um, in a kind of a, a digital utopia called uh, Arcadia. So at this point, um, he, uh, he hasn't really told his, his wife, Karina, uh, about uh, his plan to spend a, a large sum of money um, to have his mind replicated uh, into this digital utopia. And so um, this is him coming home and having a, a conversation uh, with with his wife about um, the possibility, the prospect of doing this. <clears throat> Dinner was delivered an hour ago, she said. Where have you been? Eugene sensed that she somehow already knew and decided it would be imprudent to lie. I had a consultation. With Dr. Melville, I hope you're finally thinking about going through with the, the spinal untethering surgery. She turned and faced him. I've read that the new procedure is much more effective. You know that your nerve pain is my pain too. Your nerve pain is mine too. A phrase she repeated so often that it entirely lost its initial meaning. I was at Conscious Designs. I've been considering purchasing a second self. 
She shook her head and let out an angry laugh. A cheap copy of yourself, is that what you want? Is that not the definition of narcissism? She looked away from him and back into the mirror, as though she needed the glass to mediate, to create distance. We're comfortable, we can afford this, he said. The word comfortable struck him as bizarre as soon as he uttered it. What an inapt adjective. He hadn't experienced comfort for almost 11 years now. This has nothing to do with money, Eugene. But since we're talking about it, you should be spending that money on eradicating your neuropathic pain. Another surgery is what you need. The new procedure is much more effective. I read about it. He wasn't sure if this was empathy or rhetoric. His understanding of his wife was becoming ever more abstract. Do you remember what you said about wanting to have kids, he asked. That was another time, eons ago. You said that a child is how we would live on after we died. A child will be our legacy. That's what you said. How is this any different, he asked. We would have both lived on in a t child, not just you. I wish you had wanted children then, when we had a chance to create real life before the accident. Is she trying to hurt him, remind him of his sterility? Listen, as soon as we can afford a second self for you, our two digital selves can live together forever, he said, like the melodrama we watched the other night. We? Are you mad? These are computer programs. There's no we. We die and we are dead. I think the Sinistream propaganda is really getting to you. You're smarter than this, Eugene. Think for yourself. Our second selves would be conscious. They would have our memories, our minds. And how do you know they would be conscious? How do they prove that to you? She was now standing over him like an angry parent scolding a disobedient child. How do you know that you and I are conscious for that matter, he said. There was self-satisfaction in answering the question with a question, as he'd seen in the Sinistream melodramas. Eugene, why not just have your hippocampus uploaded into a digital memory bank? That's something that will never die. It will be accessible in the collective archives forever. What is a memory without a mind, he said. Nothing. It's as meaningless as an unread book in the basement collecting dust. Thank you. The million dollar question, religious scholars, lots of studies all throughout philosophy, psychology, ask what is consciousness? And that is at the heart of your book is what are we preserving? And so I want to start with what do you think consciousness is? And there was a part in the book where you, you sort of defined it, but then there was a, also a departure from that. So tell me more about that. Yeah. Um, well, in researching this book, um, I read a lot of neuroscience texts um, and uh, was really interested in a, a very kind of rationalist, empirical understanding of what consciousness is. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of post-human philosophers, which are generally also neuroscientists as well, um, believe that, you know, we could replicate consciousness in a machine if it truly is just the kind of um, structure, right, of the brain, the connectome, if you will. Um, so I, I was really engaged in that idea when I was researching this book. Um, ultimately, I, I, I found it kind of dissatisfying, right, that, I mean, we live in a world where almost every aspect of, of our lives and every natural phenomenon has been demystified by science. Um, and consciousness is kind of one of the last frontiers of, uh, uh, of, of mystery, right, in our lives. 
And so um, I'm not sure if I'm going to completely answer your question, but um, one of the things that um, both Karina um, and Eugene in this book um, find dissatisfying is the fact that um, that consciousness, right, can be um, kind of reduced to, to data, right? Um, and um, so I think that there's something um, beyond just the connectome. And, um, and I, I, I don't think that we will be able to kind of, we might be able to replicate, and we can replicate, um, you know, people's uh, personality and responses with bots these days. Um, um, and I think we probably will be seeing a lot of that. I think we'll, we'll be seeing um, programs of, uh, of our dead loved ones um, that we can talk to. Um, there are already a couple of them that are being developed right now. Um, but I don't think we'll be able to replicate consciousness. Um, I think that there is something entirely metaphysical about consciousness. At least I hope there is. So when did you start thinking about this question? It's a big question. I think I've been thinking about it my entire life. Um, I wasn't raised with, with religion. So, you know, I've kind of, uh, you know, been able to think about these outside of the context uh, of religion um, or even, you know, any, any kind of formal spirituality. Um, but uh, really writing this book um, and the cool thing about, about writing is that, that it is a kind of spiritual act and it is, you do get to ask these big questions even if you don't answer them. Do you remember any sort of moment in your childhood on where something struck you about the world that made you question that? We start to understand that there's even anything separate from us when we're a toddler. And so I'm curious if you actually had like an inciting moment where you started really thinking about consciousness and and spirituality and like that question of like who am I really who are we what does it mean to be human one of the themes of this book um, or motifs I guess you'd say is this idea of solipsism this idea um, and I, I don't want to spoil too much um, but but there's there's this kind of idea in this book that um, potentially right all of the world you know is made for us, for our, just me and my consciousness, right? And of course, it's a very juvenile, like, way to, to see the world, right? Most little kids, they, you know, like you said, babies, you know, when, when they blink their eyes, they shut their eyes, they think that the world just goes away, right? Um, and, and I think that that's part of the tragedy of Eugene is he, he is, um, does live in, in such a kind of a solipsistic world that he kind of comes to believe that everything has been created for him. But I don't think that there was any single kind of inciting moment um, that I, I began to, to think about this. Most of my friends were religious, and um, I, I guess I found um, religious narratives um, also unsatisfactory, equally as unsatisfactory as a kind of scientific narrative that, that consciousness is just the circuitry of our brains, too. How does that, how do you reckon that with pain? So you were talking about Eugene and being at the center, like he is at the center of his universe all the time. And he also suffered an accident that left him paralyzed and with, with very crippling, ever-present pain in his whole body that is very much dominating the narrative of who he is in the world. And I'm curious, if Eugene would have been like that before, before the accident, but also how does bodily pain that is there all the time, 
I think you say somewhere in the book that most people don't live with it, don't feel it hardly ever. How do, do you think that changed him, his view of where he's centered in his view of the world? Yeah, pain is, is, um, is at the center of this book. I'm sure that there are a lot of people here um, that experience um, chronic pain, and chronic pain is really different than temporary pain, um, pain that um, you will have for the rest of your life, um, the kind of pain that I experience. It's hard to make meaning of that kind of pain, right? It's easy to, to you know, if you're running a marathon and it, it hurts like hell, right? At least there's an end in sight, and there's a goal to that pain, and it's hard to um, to kind of um, ascribe any kind of meaning to pain that just doesn't end, right? Um, and the other interesting thing about chronic pain is that oftentimes um, it's, it starts as physical pain, right? Um, but it becomes psycho-emotional pain. Um, and Eugene, um, Eugene hurts in his soul, right, from, um, from this awful pain um, and also from this kind of uh, sense of nostalgia for the person that he was um, before his his injury, um, and the way that Eugene makes his money is through organogenesis, means meaning that he raises he works for this company that raises um, pigs um, to have their um, to be slaughtered to have their uh, organs harvested and uh, and to put into into human beings, um, and then towards the end of the first part of this book, um, he comes to kind of question um, this idea of human exceptionalism in terms of uh, in terms of what make he asks what makes a human consciousness more valuable than uh, a pig's consciousness um, and so and that's kind of a, a big turning point for him and he um, and then he kind of has some suicidal ideation um, in the book as well um, and um, and so so I think that um, he, he asked this question that I think a lot of people that are suffering in different ways um, is, is there value to my existence? Is um, existence, you know, categorically better than non-existence? And that's what he has to grapple with. I think he's also asking when, and we can talk a little bit about the logistics of how do you get a second self? What is it involved? What does it look like? But when he's making that decision, I think he's having a conversation, I think with Karina about maybe it was someone um, at the at the place where he was going to maybe get his second self. I'm not quite sure about leaving the pain behind. So if you choose to have the second self and, and put your consciousness into this basically into this box and live this way, do you bring the memory of your body with you? And do you bring the memory of your pain? And the truth is that we are a sum of every moment that it's like, if we go left instead of right, we become a certain person because of that. And is it worth like, do you, I guess, do you like yourself enough or are you too afraid to see who you are without that? So something that he was really grappling with was, do I let this go and does it, would it change me? Would I not be me? And so I wanted to ask you about that for your character and writing about that. But then I also want to ask that for you about yourself. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think of course, one of the central thematic questions of this book, right, is, um, is 
pain and suffering an essential part of the human experience. If we can eradicate pain and suffering completely from our lives, which, which we're trying to do. I mean, this, is, this book is also a bit of a cultural critique about this kind of anesthetic um, world that we live in, where we, uh, we, we do try to, we don't value pain the way that we maybe once, once did. Um, uh, and the question is, right, without pain, are we still human, right? Um, if we do completely get rid of pain, right, if we could turn pain off, both physical pain and the kind of psycho-emotional pain, um, are, are we truly human, right? Um, and then, of course, there's this other question of, of right, if we can excise, and that word comes up a lot as this, uh, to, to cut out, right? Just, just as um, Eugene, you know, cuts these organs out, right? He's also considering cutting these memories and the painful parts um, uh, of his past out. Um, and... Um, for Eugene, I, I don't think I'll answer that question um, because um, uh, because I don't I don't think that necessarily he does, and I and I think uh, it's worth kind of reading his uh, his meditations on that question. Um, he is certainly warned, right, by um, by the people at Conscious Designs, which is the the name of the corporation right, that, that has these second selves, um, and they they kind of the second selves, by the way, they. Um, they, they exist in these quantum computers um, in this, this basement that's like just above absolute zero, right? And so it's almost like this kind of catacombs of these mines, right? And it's run off of this, this nuclear, um, small nuclear reactor. Um, but he's, he's warned that, you know, if you, do, if you do try to change your self-model, right, and eradicate these parts of your past, then you won't be Eugene and you might not even be a person anymore. And for, for me, um, I absolutely think that there's been so much value in, in, in my pain. Um, absolutely, I think it's, it's made me grow as a human being. Um, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, I have through writing this book been able to kind of ascribe some, some, some meaning from, from my pain and to kind of, you know, ask these big questions about what does it what does it mean to be human the other thing about freezing your consciousness is that there's a divergence so if you if we froze our consciousness today in in this little catacomb but then we kept living our life then we would diverge because they're not joined anymore so everything that happens for me on june 1st in 2022 goes this way and then I'm not really sure if, if my consciousness that's in a box can really grow that way. But one of the things that I think a character says in the book is that second selves can help evolve human consciousness. That if they are immortal and they're around forever, then they can help other people or other consciousness to maybe get us all to a higher plane. And I'm curious about that. There's, there's a lot of different kind of rhetorical strategies that um, different second selves use to try to um, convince Eugene that this is, this is a good idea. And of course, there's all, also a, a profit motive there, too. Um, but um, yeah, one of, one of the, um, there's, there's a, a woman named Nina who um, lives as a second self um, in Arcadia, but also has a, a kind of a physical self too. And they, they actually both meet with, um, uh, with Eugene, um, and, 
uh, Nina has has a disability, um, and right in the real world, and then her um, right her second self has able been able to kind of change her self model and and essentially get over that disability, which I find very problematic. And um, so there's a kind of a critique on this idea of getting over disability as this goal for people with disabilities there. But um, uh, so one of the things that she says is that, yeah, that like um, that we used to be part of the human extinction movement, right? which is actually a real movement um, in, um, in the world right now, right? Uh, in that they believe that it is immoral for humans to exist on this planet. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, there's, <laughs> we've done a lot of awful things on this planet, right? Um, and, um, and so, right, her kind of rhetoric is that, well, you know, biological consciousness is this kind of larval stage, right, to this, um, this, this um, greater consciousness, which is in, in you know, an immortal consciousness. And, and one of her points, too, is that, um, you know, that our, we, the reason that we aren't as wise as we could be is because our lives are so short, right? That we, we die before we, we can kind of um, reach our full potential, potentially. Is, is suffering having a body? I mean, you write in there, our suffering comes from having a body. Literally, that's, those are your words. And you were just talking kind of about, we were talking about, you know, can we evolve and how, how can that happen? And I'm curious about Eugene's suffering. I mean, he is in so much pain, but I'm not convinced that his suffering is because of his pain. It does come back to our brain maybe and how we habituate to our common circumstances. Like you were saying, like, you can't just try to eradicate this disability and so I'm curious where you think suffering comes from. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. And that, that quote is actually from that same computer program that's trying to convince him, right, to have his mind uploaded. So um, those, you know, those are Nina's words, right, this, this program. Um, and, I, and I certainly don't agree with that, right? I think it's, you know, um, right, her, right, her uh, discourse is just a ruse, right? And I do think that that's the problem with, um, and that's one of Eugene's tragedies, that he does see his physical pain as, as being his only problem, right? Um, and uh, not the fact that he, um, you know, can't kind of, you know, at least embrace to some degree, right, um, who he's become, right? He's always kind of thinking about, um, you know, who he was before his, his accident. Um, and, um, so I don't think, um, that, I don't think that suffering is, is, is just, um, something to do with the body, but, you know, the idea of Arcadia, of this digital universe, um, does bring up this interesting idea that even the kind of, you know, psycho-emotional pain, right, that we might feel, um, could potentially be eradicated as well, which is, of course, the much deeper um, pain that is much harder um, to endure. I mean, they don't ever say this, but maybe what they're looking for is digital nirvana. Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, it is, a, it is a kind of nirvana, for sure. Um, but, um, you're right, there's also, 
I mean, I think that if you are a self, right, um, if you have interactions with other people um, and you make decisions, then you're going to suffer, right, um, to some degree, um, um, even if you don't have a body. Welcome to being human. Yeah. Do you think, and it was set up this way, and this might have been Nina speaking again, that if you do get your second self, it's some kind of antidote to either death or the fear of death? Yeah, I mean, I I think that that's like, you know, this is the philosopher's stone, right? Um, You know, in the 21st century, right? This is what we've, right, we've been looking for, you know, since the beginning of, you know, oral history is some sort of, um, some sort of end to to death, right? Um, And so that's certainly another, um, you know, another, major um kind of selling point right for um for this and there is a lot of kind of um kind of critique um about our own you know current cultural moment historical moment right about our avoidance of of death right um and how we um you know how we seem to kind of sequester those that are that are sick and dying you know in in places and I mean, we don't, I don't, I think that one of the um, hardest things about living in in the modern world, especially um, in such a secular world that we live in, right, is that, um, is that we, we don't confront our mortality in very healthy ways, right? Um, And so, um, yeah, and, and, um, but personally, I mean, I, you know, I, I would be lying if I, said that I'm not terribly afraid of, you know, of dying. Um, and um, that I wouldn't consider, and this is probably shows how, you know, giant my ego is, like I think <laughs> Eugene potentially is that I, I, I want to, you know, you know, I do want my consciousness to, to persist in some form. So what drew you to this sort of genre? It's a little bit sci-fi, but kind of speculative. Um, You know, when you had this idea to write it, what was propelling you forward? I think science fiction, I think it's a little bit of a a bad rap. Most people that don't don't read science fiction, um, and maybe even people that do read science fiction, um, I think they think about space operas, and they think, you know, about kind of like pulp, fiction, um, which I love, um, but it's, it's not really what I'm interested um, in writing. I think what's special about, um, about science fiction and speculative fiction, uh, they're, they're pretty similar. Um, I think science fiction has to have right, some sort of kind of tech, technological element, um, futuristic element, and speculative fiction could just be a, a, a what-if kind of world. I think about Ursula uh, K. Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. This is not science fiction, but it's a, what if we had a utopia, but there was a, a child that was being tortured in a basement. One of the things, you know, and a lot of people um, told me uh, about, you know, my own story, hey, you should, you should turn this into a memoir, right? You should, you should write, um, you know, you should write some, write nonfiction about um, your spinal cord injury and and I, I, I had some fits and starts, and I, I, I thought, okay, maybe I would do that, but I felt like it was hard for me to like create a critical distance um, with my writing between what was going on with me, what I was feeling, um, and and it, it just wasn't readable. Um, and um, and I think that 
the cool thing about science fiction is, especially science fiction that's based in a world that's not entirely ours, though this is very similar, it's a very near future, um, is that it does create that kind of uh, critical distance to, to comment upon um, the world that we live in, um, uh, in in critical ways. And that's that was definitely um, one of my main goals for this project in Conscious Designs. And had you written a lot before? Not really, to be honest. Um, this is the first book-length um, manuscript that I've, I've written. Um, and I'd only actually written a, a handful of short stories before I, I wrote this. Um, my, my formal um, writing education is actually in poetry, um, which I think um, has helped me a lot, right? I mean, poetry is the kind of most distilled form of literature. And no, this is, this is really my, kind of my first um, big work. Is there anything else that you would want to say about the book? I, on my podcast, I ask all my guests the same questions at the end. So I want to get to those, but I also don't want to leave something on the table if we. Um, I think that, um, I think we've discussed a lot. Um, one of the, one of the things that really influenced me when writing this book was, um, the, the work of a French philosopher named Jean Baudrillard. Um, and, uh, his theory um, is called hyperreality, and it's this idea. Uh, and he he didn't believe that we, like a lot of people, like Elon Musk, for example, believe that we are living in an actual simulation, right? Um, but he did believe that our one of the unique things about um, about our brains, human brains, right, is that we have such a hard time distinguishing between the real and the artificial between simulation and reality. Um, and I think that that's uh, a kind of a, an exciting component of this book, um, that you're never, every time you think you're kind of on solid ground, um, reality kind of um, slips away from you a little bit. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I was going to um, just read a really short um, passage from one of my favorite um, pieces of science fiction and probably one of the oldest pieces of science fiction that I know of, and it's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, it's also a book that I, I teach in my AP literature class, and it's, it becomes a, a fan favorite. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to choose Frankenstein because I think Frankenstein does what I was just talking about. It does what good science fiction um, and good fantasy um, can do, and good horror. Um, I would call it science fiction, though. Um, and it is to kind of uh, to, to offer a critique um, of, uh, of the world um, that we live in. Um, and this, and um, Mary Shelley um, used um, Frankenstein's monster. And if you haven't read Frankenstein, I highly recommend it. It's, right, Frankenstein's monster is not this ogre, right, that, um, that I think is, uh, he's, been, he's been portrayed in, you know, in, in the movies from the 30s and on. He's certainly the most articulate um, and thoughtful and empathetic character, at least until he's mistreated and then, um, and then he goes uh, on a murderous rampage. But before that, he's ironically the most human character of the book. Um, and so I just wanted to um, uh, read a section from there's a long section in the middle of Frankenstein where um, the monster, Frankenstein's monster, and it's uh, my, my, my AP Lit students, they, they loved the monster so much that they actually, they didn't want to call him the monster anymore. They called him Greg. 
So, so, so this is, uh, so, and, uh, so the monster or Greg, if you will, um, is, uh, he's, he's recounting, um, the last two years since he was created and then immediately abandoned by Victor Frankenstein. Um, so he's, he's recounting the tale back to, um, to Victor here. Um, and he talks about how he learned about the world, um, and he learned by observing, but he also learned by reading. And he read um, one of my favorite poems, probably, the, I think, the greatest poem in the English language, and that's Paradise Lost by um, John Milton. Um, but Paradise Lost excited different and far deeper emotions. I read it as I had read other volumes, which I had fallen in, into my hands as a true history. It moved every feeling of wonder and awe that the picture of an omnipotent God warring with his creatures was capable of exciting. I often referred the several situations as their similarities struck me to my own. Like Adam, I was apparently united by no link to any other being in existence, but his state was far different from mine in every other respect. He had come forth from the hands of God, a perfect creature, happy and prosperous, guarded by the special care of his creator, he was allowed to converse with and acquire knowledge from beings of a superior nature. But I was wretched, helpless, and alone. Many times I considered Satan as the fitter emblem of my condition. For often like him, when I viewed the bliss of my protectors, the bitter gall of envy rose within me. Is there anything else you'd want to say about that passage? I just think um, it's, you know, uh, it's amazing that he's, he's, he's trying to kind of grapple with, I think, some of the similar questions that Eugene is, right, about, like, what is this higher power? Like, how could there be a higher power, right, that would create me but then abandon me, right, um, that would, you know, give me the faculty of reason, right, and empathy, um, but then not give me occasion to use them. And there's the, the whole section of um, the monster kind of learning about human history is, is it just will bring tears to your eyes. I mean, he talks about, um, you know, the eradication of uh, the indigenous peoples in the Americas and, um, and wars and cruelty and slavery. And, um, so it's, uh, it's a really powerful book. It's, it's much more than just a, a kind of a, a monster um, monster movie. <laughs> so is Greg from Monsters, Inc.? Oh, maybe that's where it came from. I wondered, yeah. Which is an amazing movie. Yeah. Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. So when I wrote this book, um, I wrote it, um, actually a pretty short time. I wrote it in about two and a half months or so. Um, and I was, um, I was, it was the first summer of COVID and I was experiencing a lot of, a lot of neuropathic pain. Um, so, and that seems to come right when you want to sleep. Um, um, and so I was, I was just getting up, you know, early in the morning or in the middle of the night. And the only thing that I felt like I could do to keep my mind off of it was, was right. Um, and so, so that's kind of how, that was the genesis of this character of Eugene. Um, and um, so I just kind of started writing about um, his pain and, and some of these um, kind of almost, they're like fever dreams that, um, that I, I would have. Um, 
you know, where um, the pain would actually kind of, in, you know, even sleep wasn't, when I could get to sleep, it wasn't really a respite from, from this, this kind of neuropathic nightmare that I was experiencing. Um, and so, um, so I just wanted to, um, to read um, a little bit um, about some of those, uh, those dreams, which were in some ways my own dreams. Um, um, but the Cynodrama was not enough to distract the attention from the torment caused by overzealous nociceptors that branched from his spinal cord below where the bone shards of the seventh thoracic vertebrae had pierced it. He closed his eyes and saw these pain receptors exploding like little firecrackers, little electric jolts, his mind trying to force sleep, the pain manifesting in dream worlds. He was bound to a large wooden pole where men in robes lit a fire at his feet that began to course up through his legs, searing his skin, the smell of burned flesh stinging the nostrils, and the two blonde children came, a boy and girl with pliers, laughing as they pulled out his toenails, starting with the pinky toes and making their way to the big ones. They were child versions of himself and Karina. There was a symmetry to the whole thing that he almost found beautiful. He awoke again. This time he heard the rodent that had been scratching away in the small wall between behind his bed, most likely trying to increase the size of his burrow. He imagined the drywall between the creature and his head getting thinner and thinner, and when he closed his eyes, it was as if the animal were scratching directly at his cranium, trying to burrow inside of him. He woke into another dream, one in which he was not bound at all, but just as in his waking life, paralyzed. Yet in this dream world, it was his whole body that couldn't move, a body that he perceived as nothing more than a collection of nerves resembling the branches of a dead tree. The ends of the nerve bundles of his legs ignited in the intense points of pain were the hot fire of the sparklers of his childhood, the ones that slowly burned their way down, and maybe there could be relief when they burned out. But this incendiary pain worked its way up into the groin and then reversed back down to his toes then back to his groin, until finally the pain began to dull as the morning light gave shape to the world again. Is there anything else you want to say about writing that? You know, Eugene's a dark character, for sure. In, in, in some ways, he's very much not me, um, um, because Eugene can't do anything with that pain, right? Um, and he lives in a world that's, um, you know, that people don't feel pain, you know? He's kind of an anomaly. Um, and uh, people, right, the doctors can't really figure out why, you know, why he keeps, you know, feeling this pain, right? They've, they've like, tried to, like, actually sever all the, the remaining connections, but he still feels his pain. Luckily, I have so much love and support, you know, uh, in my life. Um, I have a wonderful wife and a wonderful family um, um, that, um, that I, I can kind of share, share my pain with. And now I've shared it kind of with the whole world, I guess, whoever wants to read this book. Um, it was kind of cathartic, right? I know it's kind of a cliched word, but it truly felt like I was getting this pain and putting it, you know, it was almost masochistic. I was like heaping all this pain onto poor Eugene. It actually improved the way, not just my kind of the psycho-emotional effects of having a lot of neuropathic pain, but also um, my, the pain itself, right? I actually think I, I experience less pain um, when I write. Where do you write? Um, I write on the couch with uh, a computer. 
And, you know, I've, I've been told many times you should always handwrite your first drafts, um, you know, and then go back and then you can do your editing. But that's not how I write. I, I write a sentence and then I go back and I revise that sentence. And then I write another sentence and then I go back to the beginning of the paragraph and I revise that sentence and then the next sentence and the next sentence. Or in another sense, and I go back, you know. Um, and um, so I, I, I have to do it on school computer. <laughs> I hope I don't owe the district any, <laughs> any royalties. <laughs> what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, I go outside, you know. Um, it's a very different space. I, I never write outside, ever. Um, I always write inside. Um, and, you know, the kind of the more closed off I am, you know, to the world, the better, um, because it really is, everything is just up here. I've been lucky enough to get back to some of the cool things that I, I used to do, like um, like kayaking and biking and things like that. Um, so it's a wonderful place to, to be able to do those things. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife. And she's also a writer. She's a really talented um, poet. Um, and... And she's, she's very honest, and I really appreciate that. How have you dealt with rejection? I just know that it's, it's, like a, it's a hard world out there. Um, I was really lucky with this book. Um, I only submitted it to one place, and it was accepted. So, so I, was, I was really lucky that I didn't have to you know, suffer any rejection, um, because I do care a lot about this book. Um, I've written a lot of short stories that I, I care about and I think are, are interesting, and they've pretty much all been rejected. Um, and, um, so I just, I just know it's, it's a hard world out there. There's a lot of really incredible writers and there's not that many places to publish. That's the world. What is your favorite word? There's a phrase that comes up a lot, um, in this book and it's crude simulation. I don't know if that's my favorite word. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mitzi, for taking the time. If you like today's show with Nathaniel White, author of Conscious Designs, check out my interview with Emily St. John Mandel, author of the novel Station Eleven. We talked about speculative fiction, writing about societal breakdowns, and creating a sympathetic villain. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 380 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Zaina Hashem Beck, Charles Baxter, Elizabeth Strout, and Lydia Yuknovich. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this show happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.